0: Welcome to Negotiate Your Career Growth. I'm Jamie Lee, and I teach you how to blend the best of negotiation strategies with feminist coaching so you get promoted and better paid without burning bridges or burning out in the process. Let's get started. I'm so excited to have Catherine Valentine on the podcast today. Catherine is a gem. (laughs) Catherine is also... The CEO of Worthmore Strategies, where she helps companies advance, advance, and retain female talent. Catherine, we need more of you. <laughs> I'm so
1: excited to have this conversation, Jamie. There's so many good things happening.
0: Yes, Catherine is a top-rated speaker. Her clients include multinational organizations such as J.P. Morgan, KPMG, TIAA, and her work has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, the Wall Street Journal. Fast Company and Forbes. And Catherine currently lives in Atlanta with her husband and their two sons who give her plenty of negotiation practice each and every day. I want to hear about that too. But um, I was just telling Catherine, I think we're just going to be kind of like crushing on each other (laughs) in this interview because Catherine works with the companies to help them advance and retain Female talent. And obviously, I work with female talent. And so we're sort of like approaching the same problem from different ends of the spectrum. And I feel like we need more of Catherine, and there needs to be more women at every, you know, every decision, every room where decisions are made. Yeah.
1: Agreed. And I'm so excited to talk with you because we meet people every day who want additional coaching support. And until I met you, I was never entirely sure where to send people. So this is fantastic.
0: Amazing. So let's get to the big question. Why is it important for women to learn to negotiate for themselves? Why do you think that's so important, Catherine?
1: So I think that you can look at it from two different sides, right? From the point of view of the woman, there are still, you know, not only financial, but resource wise things that aren't happening for us, right? So there was this um, research that came out a couple of years ago, uh, it was done by Lee and Cray, that showed that women were being given team sizes that were 25% to 40% smaller than men, which means that inherently we're just set up to have fewer resources to do the same thing. Um, on the financial side, I mean, obviously, you know, the gender wage gap we can talk about, and also Linda Babcock's work that if you choose not to negotiate, you're giving away a million dollars. Or Margaret Neal's take on that work, which I particularly like, which is that if you choose not to negotiate, you're putting yourself in a position to have to work eight more years to retire with the same wealth. And because women tend to live longer, um, that wealth that we retire with is incredibly important.
0: Yeah. And actually, now that we're having this conversation, I I, I want to kind of go back. And is it okay I ask you, I want to know about your journey, how you got started Doing this work, what led you from you know the work you have been doing before uh Worthmore Strategies um, and the decision that led you to be like, okay, let's work with the companies themselves. Would you tell us more about that, your journey?
1: So my background is mostly in management consulting. I worked at McKinsey for a long time and then I did growth strategy for apparel companies. Um and then I went to get my MBA. And as you probably know, the whole reason to get your mba is because you think you're going to get a better job coming out right and so a better paying job exactly and so your mba internship um is really like a 3 month job interview so i got placed with a company that i was really excited about it was a fortune 20 company um i finished my summer intern like the summer project in 4 weeks they'd given us 10 to do it and i decided um that if i wanted to position myself with the highest likelihood of getting that like coveted offer at the end of the summer that what i needed to do was to negotiate to be placed on another team so that two there would be twice as many people who could vouch for me and i figured that that would put me in a good position to get this the job you know offer that I wanted at the end of the summer. So I spent all weekend. This was a, you know, this was back when Barnes and Nobles were like on every corner. So I spent all weekend at Barnes and Noble. I bought, you know, four or five different negotiation books. I highlighted everything, I underlined everything, I scripted out exactly what I was going to say in this conversation. I practiced it endlessly. Um, And then Monday morning I went in, my meeting was at 10 o'clock. By 1006, I had managed to offend the intern coordinator. And by 1010, I was being told that I wasn't a culture fit, which, as you can imagine, exactly is sort of like the phrase of death, like you're done here. Um, Once it became clear that I was no longer going to get a job offer, the internship didn't make sense. And so we agreed to part ways, at which point I was escorted out of the building by security. So I had gone from, in many ways, a top candidate, like I finished my project in half the time, to no job offer, to no internship, um, in less time, in less time than it takes to get a latte, right? And so the question became, what the hell happened in that room? And so I went. Um, I was really lucky. I had an, a year left in school, so I went back and I met with a negotiations professor who later became one of my mentors. And I said, hey, I followed all the rules. What just happened? Mm. And she pointed me towards what at that point in time was emerging research on gender negotiations mm. um, being done out of Carnegie Mellon and out of Harvard, a lot a lot of Hannah Riley Bowles stuff um, and, and Linda Babcock too, and said, you should go look at this. And it was just starting to come out like within the past year. And so I spent the next year studying how to negotiate specifically as a woman, um, which is where I learned that the way we have to negotiate is different. And, you know, maybe that shouldn't be true, but it currently is true. And also I learned that the advice that's commonly given for negotiations is wrong for women. It, it, it will actually, it is more likely to result in backlash for us. And Jamie, I know that I'm preaching to the choir on this one, right? And so I spent the next, I don't know, seven-ish years. Um, I was working full-time, but then coaching folks on the side. And then when the pandemic hit, I found myself um, in a room with a bunch of HR folks, and they were talking about how they wished that women would just come ask for something instead of quit because they were hemorrhaging women mm-hmm. and they couldn't figure out how to keep them. And so I wrote this article called Ask Before You Go. It went viral. Um, and at that point in time, a couple of banks reached out um, and said, hey, we are losing more women than we, we ever want to. We're trying everything. Why don't you come train women on how to negotiate, and let's just see what happens. Mm. And what happened um, is that we currently have the most popular training that has been done at JPMorgan every year for the past three years. Um, we have we did a corporate partnership where we showed that um, the women gave uh, the women showed a one hundred percent decrease in their intention to leave. So that saved the company, you know tons of money because these women who would have walked out of the door weren't anymore and the reason why they weren't is because we gave them the tools to ask for what they needed to be successful without having to risk what we typically have to risk in those conversations so that's my story
0: i mean and i'm i I love this is such a great story i love that it starts with an epic fail epic fail (laughs) and then you turned it around to something that just helps other women like resounding success. So, and and I, I love that because so many women are afraid to take that one step to even initiating a conversation because that risk of rejection risk of like, what if they say no, what, and you got escorted out of the building. Yes, it was an epic fail. And the thing is, is when we, um, when we talk about women
1: being nervous to take that, I mean, they're nervous for a very real reason. Like backlash is real. Mm-hmm. And I think knowing the relational ask and knowing the work of Hannah Riley Bowles and Linda Babcock, like that really changes the game because now we're in a position where we can ask without being at disproportionate risk of backlash, right? All of a sudden the cost to that ask goes essentially to zero, which means so, that we're in a position to have those conversations so much more often.
0: Yeah, and um, there might be some folks who listen to this. They're like, "Hannah, who? Oh,
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Linda, who?
0: right?" So um, I know Linda Babcock from the book "Women Don't Ask" and also "Ask for It," the sequel. Right? Uh, reading that book, "Women Don't Ask," totally changed my life because they uh, they walk you through the reasons why the gender socialization that we've been exposed to from a very very young age that uh, disposes us. To like not wanting to ask or fearing to ask or not even assuming that it's okay to ask. Right. And maybe you can tell us. I want to, I totally want to hear more about the tools and the, um, I'd love for you to define relational ask. But before you do that, maybe you can tell us a little bit about Hannah Riley Bowles as well.
1: So Hannah Riley Bowles um, is the coding of the women's program at Harvard Kennedy School. She does things that are much more broad than gender, though gender is one of her specialties. And what she did um, with Linda Babcock, and there's a a consortium of probably six or seven researchers who were very into this, but what she did with Linda Babcock um, is sort of uncover the relational ask. And the relational ask is this idea that as women, when we ask for things in a way that shows that it's both legitimate and beneficial, we can virtually eliminate the risk of backlash. Um, that term virtually eliminate is from a study that was done by Tula and a few others, um, I think about 2018. I'd have to look up the exact date of that. Um, and so all of a sudden, we're given this incredible tool. What I found in my coaching work is that the women that we work with are so busy, that having to figure out how to display, having having to prepare for this conversation, but then also having to figure out how to have it in a way that shows that what you're asking for is both legitimate and beneficial is really hard. It's almost like a level two nebulous. And so we pushed it down and introduced, um, we call it the RAY, the worth more relational ask equation, which is past performance plus future vision, plus the ask, and then stop talking. Mm. Um, Stop talking, because we found that in an attempt to make your negotiating partner feel comfortable, women would start negotiating against themselves. Mm. And so that's the one of the formulas that we teach with our corporate partners. Um, I personally have loved the corporate work even more than I thought that I would, because in the one-on-one coaching, you get to have that relationship that's so special. In the corporate work, you get the chance to have that relationship across many women, like we're teaching a lot of women, but also you get the chance to actually change culture. When you have 1,500 women going through this program and then 300 of their managers, all of a sudden how you are talking about it is different from both sides of the table. Whereas with coaching, I felt like I was a little bit limited because I could never talk to the manager about how to do
0: this better. This is like a dream come true for so many women. They're like, we want this. (laughs) <laughs> how do we get this? How do we get my manager to attend this? From a manager's point of view,
1: that boggles my mind, Jamie, is from a manager's point of view, negotiating with your employers is one of the single most high risk conversations you will ever have, and no one coaches managers on how to do this. No. there's not a single manager training out there that talks to them about how to have this conversation. Um, and so that's kind of the the newest thing that we're starting to to go into
0: this is really fascinating. So would you mind telling me more about it? Like you coach managers on how to, how to, how to have a negotiation conversation with their direct reports. In other words, how to respond, how to think about it, you know, how to, how to, what to do after that. Yeah. Tell me more. Well, the other thing we do is we educate
1: them on the gender dynamics, right? So one thing that I've found, and I don't have stats behind this yet, but a lot of managers tend to assume, so for example, we did this training, uh, oh, I don't know, 18 months ago. And one of the managers who came up to me afterwards said, I always just assume that whoever on my team came to me to ask for the opportunity was the most interested in the opportunity.
0: Oh, you got to say that out loud, slowly, one more time. (laughs) Um, wait, could you, you not you hear me? repeat it?
1: <laughs> um he came up to me afterwards and he said I always assumed that the teammate who came to me to ask for the opportunity was the one who was most interested in the opportunity.
0: I'm going to just echo you. The whoever asked for the opportunity is the one who seemed to be most interested. Okay. Please continue.
1: And that has a lot of gendered bias in it, right? And so what a number of managers don't recognize male and female, I mean, all genders, right? What a number of managers don't recognize is that the cost to asking for that is higher for women, which means that any rational actor who's doing a cost benefit analysis will come to you fewer times. Mm -hmm. Once managers are aware of the gender dynamics behind that, they understand what backlash is. They recognize that even if they're not perpetrating it, that it is perpetrated at a very high rate. And therefore, women have an extra calculation they have to do. Mm -hmm. Then they become aware of the fact that it's not a level playing field in the way that they thought it was. Mm -hmm. And so what we do is we train women in the corporation on gender-specific negotiation strategies. Mm -hmm. And then we're starting to train managers on how to have these conversations. And the first part of that training is just an awareness of the fact that it is not the same for Jamie to come to you as it is for Bob to come to you.
0: Mm-hmm. Those
1: are different Those are different things. There's a higher hurdle to hit there, both informationally and from a risk perspective. Um, and those trainings have been, we've only been doing them, we've been doing them less time than anything else. It's our newest product, but they've been really, Eye-opening.
0: I love that. And I'm curious because some of my clients who are maybe like senior managers or directors, and they go negotiate with the VPs and then the VP say, well, yeah, that's nice. But you know what? The real decision maker is the CFO or the CEO. And you're just going to be better off if you have a direct conversation with them or, you know, my hands are kind of tied, right? So that is a scenario that happens often when people do, when women right? Do what you call relational ask. I I like to describe it as self-advocacy is an act of service because you're showing them the benefit, like when you get that promotion, when you get that opportunity, it helps, you know, not just you, but the team and the company benefit, right? And so I, would you mind like telling me your thoughts about that? Like, what do you think about when um, like when women negotiate with who they assume to be the decision maker or their direct manager. And often they do that from a place of like, I want to show respect for somebody who who I report to. And then they get sort of what they call the runaround, right? It's like, no, you got to talk to the CEO or the CFO. My hands are tied. What do you think about that?
1: So a couple of things. One, yeah. the average, and this was always helpful for rem- for me to remember, the average negotiation is 25 days. That's Hannah Riley Bowles work again, right? Um and so if we create this expectation in our minds, the successful conversation is going in, uh, doing a good job at what we prepared and then getting a yes immediately, that's kind of a false hope, right? I mean, maybe it happens and that's incredible. But for the vast majority of these conversations, they're important enough that they deserve a little bit more time and a little bit more thought. Um, And part of that is, to your point, some of these have decisions that are made by committee, right? So I do a lot of work with consulting firms um, and accounting firms where promotion to partner is a decision that's made by a committee. There's not one person who will make that, right? And so in those situations, I think that conversation then becomes discovery. Oh, that's really interesting. How is that decision made? Who all is involved? Of those people Who are the ones that lead the discussion or who are the ones that you would recommend I go talk to next? And so then your job becomes um, identifying who the key stakeholders are and speaking to them and giving them the sound bites they need to
0: be a good advocate for you in the room where it happens. I'm vigorously shaking my head, yes, because this is exactly what we do inside the one-on one coaching and this this is precisely why I coach women through actually months, right? like to set yourself up for success, to change the mindset around negotiating, advocating for yourself and then exactly through all the questions that you just you know uh, offered here who who makes the decision? How is the decision made? Who's in the committee, right? What do they need to hear? workshopping that, preparing that, and then like problem solving that as you go. This is so good. Okay. So wait, Jamie, I have to ask yeah. you because yeah. you've had
1: so many, you know, so many ins at it, so many reps. Um, what else, is there anything else in there that you would say we should build on or other things that we should tell your audience that when you find yourself in a situation, consider the following?
0: That's a really good question. Um, don't be afraid to go directly to the decision maker. Yeah. And in fact, I've had a couple of clients who got promoted doing exactly that. They realized, okay, I'm working, I, I report to the manager, but the manager is sort of hands off. The manager isn't directly involved in the project that I'm leading. The manager doesn't have as much stake on the vision that's gonna be most compelling to the actual decision maker. Like I had a client who's working in global marketing and the her direct manager worked in more like market research as opposed to marketing. So we talked about, okay, who's going to be impacted by this global marketing project? The, the sales and marketing people, right? So now you really want to talk to the VP of sales who's going to have a bigger stake in the work that you do. So my client created the strategy. We co-created the strategy where she initiated one-on-one conversations where she got buy-in on that vision directly with the decision-maker who has the most, most stake in what she's doing. And then by the time she went to her direct manager, it was like, she, he, was, he was like, yeah, of course you got it.
1: I love that so much. And it's yeah. always so fun to me how much negotiation is tied in with networking, right? Mm-hmm. Both in terms of access to information, and everything else. And I'd be curious for your take on this, but one of the things that's always stood out to me about negotiating compensation specifically
0: mm-hmm.
1: is that, I can, I, we, you know, we can teach you, um, how to negotiate in terms of the skill, but the thing that I have can't knock down for you is the information asymmetry, right? Like there are, I mean, we have a list, the ultimate guide to benchmarking. We have a hundred different sources you can go to to benchmark, but none of them are eight. Mm-hmm. I mean, have you found uh, a way around that?
0: I'm just going to be totally honest. My only way around it is to um, empower the client to really trust her own intuition as to what makes the most sense for her and also to think beyond just the dollar value. Like I I just talked to somebody yesterday. She's like, I'm up for a promotion, you know, but I really, really want is to create an exit strategy because I want to become a consulting CFO as opposed to the uh, VP of finance here. Like She she really wants to create her path toward entrepreneurship at the end of the day. So I'm like, okay, then let's think about what's most important, which is your time and your mental bandwidth to be able to do that.
1: So on that note, we created this um, resource. It's a list of 75 things we've seen women negotiate because to your point, it's not just compensation. the other thing that's blown my mind though is the stats coming out recently about how it's not just compensation by any means, but about the gender gap in non-based salary compensation mm. um, like bonuses and 401k matches and all of that stuff that continues to if it, it does feel like with salary transparency laws, I wonder if what's gonna happen is sort of like we squeeze the balloon on one end and the air just moves to the other place.
0: Have you seen any of that? Um, that's a really good question. And I think that's a valid concern. And um I myself haven't really seen it uh directly, but yeah, I could see that happening for sure. And I think the only way to work around it is again networking, having those conversations with people of all genders, not just, you know, just not just your female coworkers, but Male, non-binary folks who have experience in your field at your job—you know, somebody who used to work at your company and left—they could be a really good source of information. Somebody who has some uh, visibility or exposure to HR or finance, because I, I used to work in HR and finance, and you would have to look at the salary um, of everyone, right? And so, people who—and it's legal; it's not illegal for you to have conversations like that. You could just ask them, "Hey, I'm thinking about this. Do you think that's reasonable?" What are your thoughts on that? So that, yeah, you have a thought about it?
1: Well, it just it strikes me as to the other, you know, the other big resources coaches like you, right? Mm -hmm. Because I only see my little narrow piece of this, whereas you have seen this happen hundreds of times Mm -hmm. and can help guide me as to where all of these places are. But I can totally agree with you, especially on the point of don't just ask women, right? If we just ask women, because the gender wage gap is about you know what eighty three cents now to the dollar, we're gonna get an answer that's twenty percent lower than the truth. And so it is really important, I
0: think, to ask
1: non-women as
0: well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm really glad you brought up the 70 things employees can negotiate besides salary. Um, And we also talked about some of the non-salary negotiations, but um, maybe you can share with us if you have any other tips for women who are considering negotiating, especially since you have more insight from like the business, from the employer perspective.
1: I mean, my number one tip, and I don't know that it it doesn't necessarily lean on that employer perspective part, but mine is always to plan a reward, right? We know that we are statistically more likely to do well if we have something that we're looking forward to afterwards not just as like a reward for having a great conversation but a reward for having the bravery to have the conversation mm. um, and it can be something big it can be something small it can be a hike it can be a, a bubble bath it can be a bottle of wine you've been looking at but you haven't quite you know purchased yet but knowing that there's something after it happening i think just changes how you go into the conversation
0: I love that. So in other words, reward yourself for just having taken the action.
1: Yeah, because it's like like anything else, right? Negotiation is a muscle. And the more times we use it, the easier it gets. But those first handful of times, they're rough, right? I mean, having been escorted out by a security guard was not my favorite
0: experience. (laughs)
1: And so I think um, part of it is also being kind to ourselves in the process
0: hundred percent. And I love what you're saying. And sometimes I do this inside the coaching container where I help my clients really envision and visualize how satisfying, how gratifying it would be for them to reward themselves to be on the other side of it. And then they can sort of copy and paste that feeling onto the expectation or the anticipation of the the actual negotiation. Amy, that's so great. Thank you. Yeah. And um, I want to just highlight once again, um, it's taking those steps, like initiating those conversations that's even if you fail, even if you get escorted out of the building, right? That leads to more growth. And I say that because I have coached clients who felt like the first sign of pushback they get, they're like, Oh, it means I failed. It, it means I shouldn't have. It means I should, I shouldn't do that, right? And um, we know that Wayne Gretzky. Said you miss hundred percent of the shots you don't take, uh-huh. but I also like to remind my clients that he never actually made hundred percent of the shots he did take. So does that make him a failure? I guess yes. I guess that makes me a failure. But... the way of looking at that. Okay, so
1: uh, can I build on that for a second? Yes, please. So the first thing that I always just to say to your audience is mm. I failed because I took advice that was meant for a man Mm. and I act as if it would work for me. Mm. So for anyone out there who's thinking about it, like talk to Jamie, look at our stuff. Like you can do this without having the backlash that I suffered. There is a way to do it without having the backlash that I suffered. The problem is we just don't talk about it enough Mm. and publications continue to publish advice that is gender specific, that would work for males and act as if it's not gender specific. So please, like if you have a big negotiation coming up, it is worth getting some help here. So first thing, the second thing is when you say no, the other thing that I always remind myself is even the word no is a gendered word, right? So we have been raised, uh, there's these toy coding studies starting back in the 1970s, right? And they repeat them every five years since where researchers go into homes of children and they look at what children are being given to play with. And what they find is little boys are being given toys that teach agency. I build this up. I knock it down. I'm exerting my power on the world. Little girls are being given toys that teach reactivity. My little baby cries. I respond to it. My Nana's thirsty. I make her a drink in my toy kitchen, right? Um, And children are so aware of gendered expectations that babies as young as 18 months old, so before they're even potty trained... Respond with fear when an actor comes in and acts in a gender unexpected way, right? So, this is like hardwired into us. No is part of that. I respond to my brother responds to no as if it's a piece of information, because to him, that's all it is. To me, I've been conditioned that my value is in how I make others feel, mm-hmm. and no is a direct hit to that identity, yeah. right? And so, even that word means that we have to start to divorce ourselves from basically messages that are sent to us every day, all day, our entire lives Mm -hmm. to understand that that no just means, you know, not this thing at this time. It doesn't mean you're not a good person. I don't like you. I don't want to work with you anymore. Right. All of those things that at least in my mind, um, I interpret it to mean sometimes.
0: Right. And just to add to that, like no can mean, like you said, not now, or I don't really understand the value or the beyond impact, the benefit of your ask <laughs> in a way that makes sense for me to relay to the ultimate decision maker. Well,
1: it's so interesting because the way that you're phrasing it, it really pulls out for me, like negotiation at the end of the day is a sales job.
0: Mm. Yeah. And actually, um, Can I ask you a tough question? Sure, go for it. Why not? (laughs) Because, um, you know, we're both consultants. I'm a coach and I work with women of all stripes, all backgrounds. And some of them identify as genderqueer. Or maybe some of them have been socialized as women, but they don't identify as women anymore. They see themselves as non-binary. And so the... You know the way you've described the gender research, and most of the research that I've read, they they have like this footnote that says we understand there are non-binary folks, but for the purpose of purposes of this research, we just made it binary. And so, how could gender queer folks or non-binary folks benefit? How can what can they take away from this research that have been presented in a binary way? What do you think about that?
1: That is such a good question. So two thoughts. The first one is that my company really prides itself on being research-backed, right? Like mm-hmm. these conversations are too important to send you in with like my opinion. I'm only going to send you in with things that have been proven. Mm-hmm. There is not enough, and frankly, I can only think of one study that just came out a few months ago. Um, there's not mm-hmm. enough research on negotiation and non-binary, or frankly, even just negotiation and LGBTQ plus, right? Even negotiation and women really only started eight years ago,
0: um, if you think about it, maybe not. That's when the research started.
1: Yeah, when it really started building out. To your point, Linda Babcock was on the front end of that. I think hers came out in 2002, Mm -hmm. but then it was pretty quiet for a while. Um, And it wasn't until 2013-ish that we start to see this explosion in research again. Um, And that is around women. And before that, we didn't have too much. Now, we still don't have very much, not even close to enough um, on women of color, on LGBTQ plus, and on non-binary. So from a research perspective, there's not much I can add there. Now, to take off like my company hat and to put on my Catherine hat, Mm -hmm. anecdotally, Um, what I have seen is, and I've seen actually a lot of men use our strategies too. Anecdotally, what I have seen is that it just gives you another tool that you can decide whether or not it feels authentic to you. And if having conversations in collaborative ways where it's a win-win, where you are solving a problem together feels more comfortable to you, then you're more likely to negotiate. And we should definitely use that tool. If that doesn't feel, I worked with um, one woman who was ex-Navy and she'd been in the Navy for like 15 years and it just wasn't her style. Like she had been brought up on command and control hierarchy. This is how this works. She did not, she was much more comfortable with that approach. In which case, you know that this tool is there, use it if you want to, but by no means do you need to or have to, if it doesn't feel more comfortable to you.
0: I really appreciate you sharing that because in my one on one coaching container, self empowerment is so important. And that starts with knowing that you get to make a decision that feels right and makes the most sense for you. Even if there's all this like plethora of research saying X, Y, and Z at the end of the day, you get to decide. I think it's self sovereignty. And that
1: I would, have, to- I would have loved to have been one of your coaching clients. 100% yes. And what I'm doing here is I'm just introducing another tool to the toolkit.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. That reminds me, I have a client who's uh, an expert in the medical field and she read this Cornell university research about status leveling burden of um, high status women in the medical field. And I don't know if you're familiar with it. basically- I have seen it. Yes. And for my client, when she read that research, she shared it with me, we read it and it created some stress for her because it led to this, Thinking that she had to level her status in order to get along with the nursing staff, in order for her to get promoted, in order for her to have a good enough reputation, right, to advance her career. So I'm like, okay. And let's just remember some strategies are useful and not all of them are. And also, sometimes these research, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, sometimes they echo like very personal opinions that are not necessarily objective, that that are not necessarily data. Yeah.
1: There is one study that I read a couple of years ago that concluded that the experience is no different for women of color.
0: That just can't possibly
1: be true. There is just, there is no way that that can be true. Right. Um, And so I agree with you that like, don't, I wouldn't hinge too much on one study Um, a lot of what we do is I was actually just reviewing today our log of 220 studies in one area Mm. Um, so I always want things double triple quadruple validated which actually frankly presents even more of an issue for the groups that we were talking about earlier because having having one study would be fantastic right We, we don't have much at all there Mm. there's a there's a couple new ones in women of color that are pretty good but even that it still treats all women of color as one group right right? we're we're not the research community is there's definitely plenty of good work left to do
0: yeah yeah it's not perfect it's not it's not you know, with, with judiciousness, right. That sounds like deliciousness. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) I'm sorry, say that again. I said, and I'm so hungry. (laughs) Okay. I think we're going to wrap this up. So Catherine can go have lunch, but, um, I really appreciate you going to that, um, uh, that tough place and like acknowledging at the end of the day, as individuals, as as people, as as human beings, we get to make a decision for ourselves, what is most useful. And by and large, what we're learning is that relational ask. In other words, framing, um, owning your past accomplishments and talking about your wins in a way that highlights what is the benefit? How does the other side, how does your employer, how does your team win? Doing that helps Women negotiate successfully in general. And there are always exceptions to be made, and that's okay. Did I miss anything?
1: No, and I really love the the way that you put it out there as um nothing is perfect, but at least we're building on it every day.
0: That's right. That's right. And so um I'm curious, what do you think this all means for men?
1: So I have a couple of thoughts. Okay. Um for so one thing that i've seen happen over the past year is the percentage of the the people coming to our talks that are men has skyrocketed. So when i very when i started doing this i was virtually in 2020 no men. Um 2021 handful, not many. Um i did a session yesterday that was 40% men. Which is fascinating to me, right? So i think one thing is knowing this enables you to be a better ally, a better colleague, a better manager, a better brother, a better son, right? A better father. Um, and actually it's amazing me how many fathers we have come to this, right? But it allows you to be not only better at your job, but to better support the the women in your life. Mm. The second thing though, and Jamie, I'd be curious on your take on this, but as we move continue to move in a more and more collaborative direction just in how we do business, my hypothesis is that the way that women The way that it behooves us to negotiate now because we can lower the risk of backlash is actually going to become the way that everyone is going to want to negotiate soon. Because as we go from more command and control to more collaborative workplaces, um, the old combative way of negotiating just really isn't going to fly. So those are my two thoughts. One, it makes you a better ally, a better manager. Two, I think it can
0: be a really good tool in your toolbox too. I would have to agree. And I would, I would love to see that happen and that become more of the norm for everyone. And so some people are wondering, wait, what companies are paying to train yeah. their women and their men to negotiate and their managers to be ready for this? Like, why are companies doing this, Catherine?
1: Um, companies are doing this because they've actually done a really good job of recruiting incoming classes that are 50-50. What's happening is if half of that class is more likely to leave than the other half, then when you think about your future leadership, you're having to pull from a pool that's half the size of what it used to be. And so it's really to their benefit, both for their future growth and, I think, morally to figure out how to retain more women. And one of the ways that they have done that is a lot of top-down programming, right? Uh, Long-term maternity leave, shipped breast milk, whatever it may be. And those are applaudable and, and, and part of the solution. But what we have missed up to this point is that no individual is the same right? So what you and I need to be successful is not the same. I'm not going to guess that what you need now is different from what you needed five years ago, and will be different from what you need in five years. Mm -hmm. So we have to enable a bottoms up mechanism to match these women into what they need to be successful. And that is what negotiation is, right? Negotiation allows you as an individual to identify what it is that you need, and then to have that conversation. At this point in time, we have value, unrealized value lane all over our organizations because those conversations haven't been able to happen freely for one gender. Mm. Um, And our job is to alleviate that pain point so that women and managers are in a position to openly discuss what is necessary, even though it's different from what it historically has been.
0: What I love about this is that you approach negotiation not as a transaction, not as a haggle, not as a bargaining, you know, tool, but as like it's more of a holistic conversation about what is it that I truly want. It helps you raise your awareness and helps you raise your awareness about the impact of your contributions, so that you're really having a mutually beneficial conversation. Yeah, I love that. So, Catherine, is there anything else that I missed that you would love? you know, for me to ask or... Well,
1: the only thing I would mention is for any of your listeners who want to see that list, you can go to our website, which is worthmorenegotiations.com. And at the top, there's a um, yellow bar. If you click on that and put in your email list or your email address, it will send you our list of 75 things you can negotiate for. And I think it's always one of those things that when you whenever you have an opportunity to negotiate, it's helpful to just skim that list and it you know triggers new ideas, if nothing else. I love it. it's all for free. All free. Yes. Actually, that's the, our corporate work um, subsidizes our direct work. So we don't actually sell anything to consumers right now. We just try to produce resources.
0: We appreciate that. And if anyone who is listening to this and they're like, oh, I want to get my, you know, CHRO or the head of HR talking with Catherine, where should they go? Jamie, thank you so much for asking. You can go to that
1: same website, worthmorestrategies.com, and you can go to the contact form and email us that way. At the same time, if you're also on the planning committee for a women's conference or if your women's ERG brings in speakers, we do a lot of training through keynotes. um, And so that's another good way to connect. Excellent.
0: Well, this has been pure pleasure. I hope we can have another chat soon. And I'm going to let you go have some lunch now. (laughs)
1: Jamie, this was great.
0: Thank you so much for
1: your time. This was really fun.
0: What do people actually say when they negotiate for a big pay raise? If this is you, I've got you. As an executive coach for smart women, I help my clients figure exactly this out. To help you help yourself, I've put together a completely free ebook, How to Ask for a Big Pay Raise, which you can access right away from my website, jamieleecoach.com. That's spelled J-A-M-I-E-L-E-E-C-O-A-C-H.com. In this free ebook, you're going to get two real client case studies showcasing how to secure a 44% pay increase and more, 20 easy to read pages that you can access directly on your mobile because you got to prep on the go, and three simple questions for getting past impasse with curiosity and creative brainstorming. So don't wait, go grab your free ebook, How to Ask for a Big Pay Raise on jamieleecoach.com and I will talk to you soon.